I'm going to start uh, this morning, this is a little different, but this is a literature test for you to see if you guys had a decent education when you were raised. And uh, I had fun doing this. It does go someplace, by the way, but uh, now some of you will probably know all of these and some might not know any, but I'm going to read. This is, these are the first lines to well-known fictional pieces of literature. Well-known. And uh, I've got five of them, and so you can 20% each in case you're grading. <clears throat> Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. Does everybody know what that is? You're saying yes, but I'm not hearing the title. Okay, A Christmas Carol. Great. I thought that was an easy one, yeah. yeah. Yes, you can raise your hand. That'd be great. How about this one? Uh, not quite as well known. When he was nearly 13, my brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow. <laughs> it's my wife's favorite book, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. You bet. This one... I'd be surprised if any man in here knew, but a few of the ladies might. Well, see, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. You're absolutely right, Stan. Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Jane Austen, that's right. How about this one? This is... This is, for me, this was the first one I thought of. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick, yeah. That was the easiest one, I thought. How about this one? This might be the second easiest. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yep. The age of wisdom, the age of foolishness, the epoch of belief, the epoch of incredulity. Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. Good. You guys are good. Just give yourself a gold star and we're done for the day. You know, if you know these first lines to these stories, you already know quite a bit about the story that's coming. Because the first line is laden, some would say pregnant, with meaning. It's filled up, we, we just, it's like a balloon with water, you just prick a little hole, that first line, and out comes all this meaning that's going to reveal something about the content of the book and the story that's to come. So they're really important, and you know, they should be, I suppose. First lines, if you're a writer, you know that you want to grab your audience from the first line. Most people say if, if you don't have them in the first paragraph or so, the first page, you don't have them. And ideally, from the first line of a story or an article or a book, you learn something that's of the essence of the story that's to come. And that's certainly true with these. You know, if you know the stories, you know that these first lines have a lot of meaning. They tell you actually quite a bit about the story that's to come. Consider the first line in this book. This is the first book, first line in the first book of the book of books. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now just think, if you were going to write a book about the history of the world, where would you begin? What would it sound like? What would it look like? When God's writing his own earthly biography, as it were, he says, through Moses, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What a great beginning, right? It's majestic, it's simple, it's profound, it's everything you'd want, and it's touching on the very basic elements that the whole book tells you it's going to be about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we know what's coming, don't we? This is a book that's going to tell us about how things began, 
who and what we are, what our world is, how it got into existence, and who its creator it is, most important of all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a great line. Why didn't we think of that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Great line. Let me read you another first line. This comes from a book that I think you can make the argument is not first in order in the New Testament, but perhaps first theologically in the New Testament. And listen to its first phrase and first line. It sounds very, very familiar, doesn't it? In the beginning. In the beginning. Gee, that sounds just like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Great line, right? John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a great clear trumpeting verse just like Genesis 1-1 for John and his gospel in the beginning if, if you will of the New Testament theologically speaking what a great opening what a great first line to tell us what's coming both in his gospel and in the rest of the New Testament in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God John wants us to know right from the beginning that he is going to want us to trust in the person and work of this gospel's object, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you have any question, I love him because, for among other reasons, because he's clear. You know, if you wanted to read his gospel and then take the test, you could do it because he tells you what you're supposed to know. So in chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us this, John, These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is as clear as it gets. He says, the reason I've taken the trouble to write these 21 chapters is because this is what I want from you. I want you to be able to believe that Jesus is the Christ because when you believe, you'll have life in his name. You'll have life. That's his intent. That's what the content of his book is about. He wants, you and I, John is, John does, the author, the human author, to come to know, to personally believe in Jesus Christ, God the Son and the Son of God, so that we might come into a vital relationship with him. From the opening phrase of his story, he's saying Jesus is the one. He's it. You want life? He's it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I confess John is probably my favorite gospel, and just a little background, you know, there's four Gospels, four stories in the New Testament, just like the old, right? In the Pentateuch, five books, actually four are similar to one another. They're telling the same parts of the same story. The Gospels are like that. Four different versions of the same story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptics, synoptics, and that means that they see things from the same way. They look at at Jesus and his ministry from the same vantage point, generally speaking, They kind of go in chronological order from his birth or the beginning of his ministry and they move kind of chronologically through with relatively short vignettes and uh, Sermon on the Mount, kind of the lengthiest portions of those synoptic gospels. But they're similar. They see Jesus' life and ministry from essentially the same vantage point. John is not a a synoptic gospel. His is entirely unique. Entirely unique. That's probably why it is my favorite. 
The other Gospels tend to paint small pictures, if you like, and John paints on great, big, huge canvases. I don't know if you've ever been to the uh, Chicago Art Institute, but you'll go into rooms, and in one place you'll see a little tiny picture, literally this big, it's of some famous work of art. You walk into another, and the picture is the entire wall. And that's what John's doing. He's taking a wall to paint his portraits as you read through his gospel. His gospel is constructed literarily. It's got seven signs that it's hung on. John's story is told around seven signs or miracles. Signs is an important concept for John. But seven, seven being the number for completion or perfection, John's gospel shows through these seven signs, Jesus's perfections, if you will. The other thing about his gospel, though, related to these large canvases is you get lengthy discourses. You get a lot of time spent on one thing or another in John's gospel that you don't in any of the other three gospels. I'll give you some examples. We already studied through the upper room discourse, but that's John 13 through 17. It's five chapters John takes to cover what the other three gospels take a few verses to less than one chapter to tell us about. John takes five chapters to fill in that same night. Some of the most memorable interactions with people during, in the Gospels take place in John's Gospel. For instance, uh, Nicodemus and the, the conversation at night there in John chapter 3 and where Jesus says you must be born again. That's, John's the only one who records this. Or the woman of Samaria that Jesus meets at the well and tells her about a water of life that she'll never need to thirst again. That's in John's Gospel, chapter 4. Or what's called the Bread of Life Discourse, one of the longest chapters in John, chapter 6. John paints this vivid picture by giving us all this detail about Jesus' interaction with the Jews where he calls himself the Bread of Life. Or John 10 where you learn about more than any other Gospel passage about Jesus as the good shepherd who cares for your soul. That's John chapter 10. But throughout his gospel, he hangs his gospel and his story of Jesus on seven signs or miracles. That's the structure. And then he does so with these huge canvases. It's great. So in the other gospels, it's like we're walking by a window and we look in it as we go by. And John, instead, he's painting this huge portrait on a wall, and he's offering us to stop and stand and stare at it. So quite a bit of difference. The key, let me give you some other background on John. If you didn't know, I'm going to be teaching through John, by the way. And we'll take some breaks along the way, but I will be teaching through this gospel. The key word in John's gospel is believe. It occurs 77 times. That's no accident. It's believe, 77 times. <clears throat> the purpose verse that we already read, verse 31 in chapter 20, says, I, John tells us, I'm writing so that you'll believe. That's what he wants. Because he says, when you believe, you get life. And then also, the key verse, which is arguably the best known verse in the Bible, is the key verse in John's Gospel, John 3:16. Same thing, same theme, same word. <laughs> God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would have life. That's the thing. That's the theme. It's to believe. We've talked about belief because we've talked about what do you believe, what do you have faith in. Remember we said that synonyms for believe are trust, confidence, faith, 
It comes from the Greek pistis or pisteo, which is to believe. That's translated in other places, faith. But it's the same thing. And it doesn't just mean I have academic knowledge of something. It means that I really know something, that I really trust something to be so, to be true. I have confidence in it. That's the thought throughout his gospel. I know it. I don't know about it. I know it. There's some other great key terms in John's gospel, and the three that I've picked out, I think the key, uh, in addition to believe, are life and light and truth. You'll see those coming up, and John's going to tell you that Jesus is, in himself, is life. And he's going to tell you that Jesus is, in himself, light. In fact, he'll, he'll say these things in the next few verses in his first chapter. And that he'll tell you that if you're someone who's seeking truth, you'll find it in the person of Jesus. He is truth. John 14, 6 touches two of these three. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's it. John's gospel is going to tell us Jesus is life, light, and truth. Back to verse 1. When John wrote this gospel, this is one of the last books of the Bible to be written. This was probably written around 100 A.D., and John lived to a ripe old age. And when he wrote, there were, theologically, there were swirling ideas uh, going around at this point in time. And also when he wrote, he was writing for two separate audiences. Remember, John is a Jew, and this is still, at least in the area around Israel, still significantly a Jewish area, and the church is still at this time even still significantly Jewish. But he's writing for both a Jewish audience and he's writing for a Gentile audience. You know, for the Jews, there was only you were a Jew or you were not. You were a Jew or a Gentile. And the the term Greek uh, for the Jews meant uh, Gentile or Greek. It, it was used interchangeably. It could mean ethnically Greek and or Roman, or it could just mean anybody who wasn't a Jew. So one of John's audiences was the Jewish world. So thinking about his Jewish audience, John says in the first phrase of his gospel, in the beginning. Now you know if you're a Jew, when you hear those words, what are you thinking of? Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. For the Jew who read this work or heard it read, the first phrase he heard was, in the beginning. And John's telling them that what I have to tell you about, I'm taking you back to Genesis, the book you know and love. I'm taking you back to Yahweh, Jehovah, the God you believe in, when I'm telling you about this Jesus. So as soon as the Jewish reader heard or saw this, He's thinking Genesis 1-1. That was no accident. It's intentional. John's telling them the Jesus, the word I'm going to tell you about, I'm connecting. I want you to think about Genesis 1-1. The God you already believe in is who I'm talking about here. In the beginning. When he says in the beginning was the word, and then you go back, read that back into Genesis 1. You remember the creation account? Listen to verse 3, Genesis 1-3. God said... Let there be light, and there was light. God called the light day, and the night he called, in the darkness he called night. In every phase of creation, how does it occur? God speaks. God said. 
And it was. So when John says, in the beginning, he's not just taking us back to Genesis 1.1. He's telling you that Jesus is the Word of God spoken in Genesis 1. Even in the following verses, he's going to say that Jesus created everything. That nothing that's come into existence came into existence apart from Jesus. But he's also telling you, even before he goes that far, by calling Jesus the Word and referencing Genesis 1.1, he is telling you that Jesus is God's Word in Genesis. That Jesus was God's power. He was God's Word in creation. So for the Jewish Word, John is assaulting their senses right from the opening phrase by reminding them of Genesis 1.1 and then telling them that Jesus is the Word that God spoke in the creation account. Jesus was God's Word, not just for John in John 1, but in Genesis 1. Jesus is God's Word. This has a wider breadth of meaning, too. Think about it this way. If you read in the book of Jeremiah, the Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, or if you're reading in the Pentateuch and it says, God said to Moses, you can read John 1, 1 back into those phrases and you can understand that Jesus came to Jeremiah and that Jesus spoke to Moses. In fact, I would argue based on another verse in John that no man has at any time seen God, but the Son has revealed him. If you see God revealed in the Old Testament, you are seeing Christ. Genesis 19, when the men come to Abraham, and they see him and they interact with him. And, and it says, the text says, it is the Lord. It is God. They weren't seeing the Father, but they were seeing the Son. They were seeing Jesus revealed. I would argue that in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are walking in the garden, they are not walking with the Father. They're walking with the Son. And that when Joshua stands outside the city of Jericho and it says the commander of the host of the Lord stands before him and says, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. That is Jesus standing in front of him, telling him God's word, Jesus the word, explaining God's word for Joshua and Israel. John's taken us by this opening phrase and sentence. We are now reading Jesus, the person of Jesus, back into not only the creation account, but back into the Old Testament, when God speaks, Jesus is His Word. Jesus is God's revelation, Old and New Testament. God has not revealed Himself apart from His Son. Hasn't happened. You know, Paul tells Timothy, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. You know, in fact, Jesus says later in, in uh, John's Gospel here, that the ladder that will reach from heaven to earth, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder. He is the link. He is the bridge between heaven and earth, between God the Father and humanity. So this opening line for John to the Jewish world, he's telling them, guys, the one I'm telling you about, he is the God of Genesis 1. He is the God of Genesis 1. And when God spoke, it was Jesus speaking and creating the worlds. He left them, no doubt, he was claiming deity for Jesus, the object of his gospel. Now for his Gentile audience, this is where uh, some more of the theology comes into play. Um, in fact, I'll just mention, there was a, a heresy called Gnosticism. It somehow elevated knowledge 
above basically everything else. Um, and this went along because you figure the gospel goes out into the Greek world. And the Greek world was big on philosophy and ideas. And as you know, uh, the Greeks were great philosophers. Paul argues philosophically with them at Mars Hill, Acts 17, I believe. They were big into philosophy. They loved to talk about things and figure things out, not just mathematically, but philosophically. So words and expressions and ideas were big to them. And to this Greek world that loved ideas and philosophy, John says of Jesus that he is the word. Jesus, if you will, is the big idea. He's the end of your philosophical search. He is the ultimate reality. He is the ultimate expression of truth, of life as it really is. That's why he uses the term word, which we'll talk more about in just a minute. Jesus was the ultimate philosophy. He was the end of their search for meaning. The Greek world, I think, was quite a bit like the world you and I inhabit today in that most Gentiles in the Greek-Roman world paid some kind of outward social um, acceptance of religion. Most, however, did not believe it. They held to a nominal form of religion. You know, Greek and Roman mythology is great stuff, and it's fun to read. And that's the way most of these guys felt about it. It was a religion that they observed publicly. And if you didn't observe the Greek-Roman religion publicly, you were not a good citizen, and that was an important thing. So there was an observance. Most of them, though, felt that it was really their, their religion was uh, fables and stories for children. They didn't personally believe it, though they gave an outward conformity for social reasons. So they would be like a lot of people in our day today, nominally agreeing or acquiescing with a certain set of principles or doctrines. Do you believe in God? Sure, I believe in God. Well, what do you really believe in? That would have been the world they inhabited. So to them, they were like, Clerics, religious people, scientists in our day, they might go to the temple on Friday or Saturday night or they might go to church on Sunday morning, but they were really worshiping at the altars of science and intellect and academics and ideas. So to this group, the Gentile part of John's audience, to this group fixated on knowledge, John says that in Jesus, ultimate knowledge ultimate truth, ultimate philosophical, ontological reality has expressed itself concretely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Jesus the philosophical has met the material, the spiritual has met the corporal, and the divine has taken on humanity. So he's telling the Greeks who are fixated on knowledge and ideas, he is the essence of everything you're talking about, thinking about, looking for. This is all in his opening phrase, and first line. In the first line itself, let me talk about three terms. When John says in the beginning, the Greek there is archi. Archi, if you think of English words, you say, I have an arch enemy. Or he is an archetype. It means the first or the primary thing in time or authority, something like that. 
So John says of Jesus, Anarchy, in the beginning was the Word. What John's saying is when the beginning began, the Word, Jesus, was. He precedes the beginning. He's eternal. In the beginning, when time began, when the beginning began, the Word was. The Word was. The Greek for word here is logos. It comes from lege or lego, depending on tenses here. But it means to speak or to say something. That's its simplest form. You know, for John, it's a loaded word. And it probably implies more than just speaking. It means speaking, but it also means action. It means an ideal. It's the essence of something. And so again, specifically for the Greek world, this had great meaning. He is the ultimate expression, and he's the ultimate action or cause, the first cause, if you will, by calling him the Word. And then the last, and certainly not the least, uh, in Arche, in the beginning, was the word logos, or logos, and the word was with God, theos, and the word was God, theos. If you've ever had discussions with people from, um, I think it's Jehovah Witnesses, and people in the way, there are groups who claim Christianity largely uh, understood, but say this, this verse does not claim deity for Christ, and there's absolutely no way around this that it does. Uh, in fact, the Greek here is uh, great because uh, they point to the fact that the Greek, uh, the word was God. Typically, with the uh, subject here, you would have, I'm going to forget the term. Anyway, we would have ha logos or theos, the God. You don't pronounce it in English, but the article. We'd have the article in front of the word. But here, because it doesn't have the article, it has the sense of an adjective. So it describes the word. The, the reason I say this is neat is because it... Uh, by doing this, it defines or it helps to uh, keep clear both that Jesus is himself God, but that there is more to God than Jesus. So it is as concise as it can be in uh, referring, if you will, even in the tangent, to the Trinity, that Jesus is inherently God, but it leaves room for he was with God, meaning God the Father. So it's great on both aspects. Jesus was, with God, Jesus was God. John's Gospel, I was talking with Rachel on a short walk this morning, uh, it's the most personal of all the Gospels. It's the most intimate, both because it talks in these uh, lengthy discourses, because he paints on these big canvases, but also, you remember, this is the disciple who lays his head on Jesus' chest the night of the Last Supper. He's one of the three that goes with Jesus. Whenever he's just pulling a few out of the twelve, John is always one of them. He knew Jesus as intimately as any. In fact, he calls himself later the disciple whom Jesus loved uniquely. And so his gospel is the most unique, if you will, intimate portrayal of Jesus of any of the four. So when we read through his gospel, we get the most up-close personal view of Jesus you can get. It's one of the reasons why if you know someone who wants to know what Christianity is or what it teaches, John's gospel is the best place to steer them because John tells you, this is why I wrote, so that you'll know him, believe, and have life.
and everything he writes is towards that end so that you'll believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So as you're thinking about John, thinking about that opening sentence, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's where we're going. It's this intimate portrayal of Jesus, and we could just hang our hat on that alone. Uh, For your homework, though, if you care to do it, uh, think about this this week. A great story starts with this great line, and this great line tells you it intimates, it unloads a little bit about what's coming in the rest of the story. And John does that. I mean, I don't know how we could get more in one short sentence than we do in John 1. 1. Uh, But for the application this week, do this if you care to. If someone were writing your story, your gospel, your good news, the story of your life, and they're writing the first line, what would it say? What would the first line to the story of your life be? What would it include? What would it infer? What hint would it give us about what the fuller story is going to tell us? Think about that for just a second. Later this week, think about this. If you can, write a first line to your story. If you can't write the rest of the story, that's fine. Just one line. One line would do, wouldn't it? John 1.1, 1, 1, if you don't go any further in the gospel, John 1.1 1, is enough. It succinctly tells us who he is, that we need to believe in him. But in your story, in your life story, if you write your first line... What does it include? What do we learn about you? What does the essence of your life boil down to? What's the first line of your story? Does your life story, does it carry significance at this point? And by this I don't mean material wealth, and I don't mean fame in the world. I don't mean anything the world values or uh, thinks has meaning. But I mean in an ultimate sense. Is your life's story, is it significant? From God's perspective, is it significant? Does your life's story include the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the ultimate truth, the true life? Is it exemplified or infused, if you will, by the object of John's gospel? Would your first line somehow identify you as someone who has come to know and come to believe and come to life? Are you and I living and writing shallow lives in shallow verses? Or are we connecting with John and coming to know and live with the ultimate word and reality, the essence of life itself in the person of the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a tough homework assignment. You don't have to do it if you don't want. But think about it. Pray about it. Lord, what's the first line of my life story? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God. Let's pray. Lord, what a portrayal of your Son we have in John's Gospel. It is an amazing, I hate to call it a piece of literature, Lord, but literarily it is amazing. 
And it is amazing for who it introduces us to. Lord, you've come down to our level. Heaven came to earth in the person of your Son and the one who spoke the world and the universe, the stars and the creation came down and spoke through the voice of a man. And Lord, to Jews and Gentiles, Jesus calls out through John's words for us to come to you, to come to know you, to trust you, to find life in you through your Son. Lord, I know this isn't just for a point of conversion, though that's where we start, but it's for a life that's lived and filled with Jesus as real life and real light and real truth, real meaning, real significance. And Lord, I'm just struck by how often I choose to lead a shallow, unimportant life, Lord, because I don't value you highly enough. Lord, we would ask you this morning to write our life, write it large, write it in a way that honors your Son and what he's done for us. Free us from all the chains, Lord, that keep us back from living our faith. I know many times we would say we believe in you, but help our unbelief. And Lord, many times fear and doubts keep us from writing our life large like your son's. Speak to us this week, Lord, about where we're at. Lord, if we're living those shallow lives like cheap novels, help us to start a new book and a new chapter. Give us a sense, Lord, of the life you're calling us to in your Son. We ask you to write that first line to the story of our life. Thanks that ultimate truth, Lord, ultimate reality, life and light is all to be found in the person of your Son. And I, I just ask you to help us to dive in head first to the life you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.